Well, good morning, church. We're super glad to have you here today at Stone Point. If uh, you missed the last couple of weeks or this is your first time at Stone Point, we just got out of a marriage series called Take a Vow. And if you missed a couple of weeks of those or if you would like to go back and just listen to them again, we have them on our website at thestonepointchurch.com. You go under the resources tab. and We have all our sermons there that you can go back and listen to. And if you miss some of them, you can go and listen to because it's a fantastic series of how just God spoke mightily through Brandon and just showed us how to have a relationship with our spouse or our, or our uh, husband and wife. And just uh, he just really showed us through the Genesis 24 how God relates to the church and how we can relate to our spouse the same way. Um, today we're starting a new series called Disciple, uh, Be One, Make One. And so uh, with that, there's a, some questions that kind of come. And so the next couple, we'll have a three-week series and we'll have Easter. So just kind of be with us because this is going to be a pretty challenging series. It's already challenged me on how to look at being a disciple for Christ. And so before we get in, uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll start uh, the new series. Father, I do thank you for today. I thank you for constantly training us, constantly holding on to us, and constantly making us more and more like you, Father. God, I ask that you help us to realize the mindset that we must have when we go and we make a decision to follow you. And I ask that you speak to us all miraculously like you do every Sunday. Speak to us exactly what we need to hear and exactly what we need to change so that we can go out and make your name famous, Father. God, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for your spirit. And I ask that you just change lives today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So disciple. You may be the first time in church today or, you know, we kind of throw this term around, disciple. And so two questions really come to mind. The first being, what is a disciple? Like, if, if I'm going to be one, I kind of need to know what that is. And so a disciple is simply a learner or a student or a mimic of someone or something. The best picture that I think I could probably give you today is kind of like somebody that's training someone to take over their position at work. You're sitting there and instilling qualities into them, teaching them how to do your job. And so you have this idea that you're going to step out and they're going to be your disciple in that position. Another way is like a homeschool student. You, you uh, educate them, you provide education, but you're also instilling qualities and characteristics into that child that you want them to grow up and be like. And so then we kind of think about it and go, okay, let's look at it biblically wise. And we see the example from Jesus and the 12 men that he discipled. He asked more to come, but a lot of them made excuses and left and went home. And you had 12 men that stuck through three years of ministry with him and then went beyond that. And so you see the point where he comes to every person and he says, follow me. He comes to them individually and he says, follow me. And they have to make a decision at that time. Do I leave what I'm doing, my job, my family, my hobbies, my desires to follow this guy that I don't really know? Because he didn't say, hey, get ready, because we're going to go through all of these difficulties and I'm going to die in three years. And then I'm going to leave you. And he doesn't tell them that. He just comes and says, follow me. And then you see this three-year process of him 
going and teaching people. And they get to see him, and they get to see how he teaches, how he prays, how he loves people, how he performs miracles, and how he interacts with God. And then, and then he dies. And then, the, can you imagine just their hope being crushed and destroyed at that point? So we've got this idea that a disciple is someone that kind of follows Christ here. And they learn by his teaching, by his actions, how to be a disciple. So the second question that comes to everybody's mind is, are you worthy of the manure pile? First one had a lot more laughs than that, okay? So you see this, you're like, what in the world does that have to do with being a disciple? And so like any good, really good movie, I'm going to show you the end of what Christ is saying here. We're going to get to the end of the story. We're going to see what he's talking about. And then we're going to back up to the first and see where he's going to really get the impact of what he means at the end of the story. So Luke 14, that's where we're going to be. Uh, If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, it'll be Luke chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have things, uh, we'll have the scripture up on uh, the screen here. But if you don't have a Bible, we want to give you one because it's that important to be in God's Word daily, and we want to be able to bless you with that. So if you don't have a Bible, on the way out, we have a resource center out there where you can get your shirts and all of that. We want to give you a Bible. It doesn't cost you a thing. We want to just say, here it is. It's that important to us. So if you don't have a Bible, make sure you pick one up so that you can read it weekly uh, at home. So Luke 14 we're going to start normally in 15, but I'm going to take you to the end, and we're going to go to 34 and 35 first. And he says, this is Jesus speaking, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for, here it is, the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so Jesus is speaking this out, and he says, those that have ears, let him hear. We hope that you understand. If you have ears, just really kind of pay attention. And if we take these two verses out of context, if we pull them out and we put them right here, they're kind of confusing. Like if you look at it and you say, salt is good. I agree with that, God. I think salt is great. In fact, I put a lot of it on my food, right? And we're like, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? Okay, I get that because if salt doesn't actually flavor my food, it's maybe not useful to me, but I don't really know how salt gets its flavor back. And he's saying it's impossible. And it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. And there you lost me, God. No idea where you're going there. It is thrown away. I got that. Okay, it's not not of use. And what we think of salt is we think of, we go to Brookshire's, right, and we buy a thing of salt, fairly cheap, we put it in our kitchen, and it lasts for an eternity, right? Because we have pure salt nowadays. It it's, it's flavors our food. But back then, the salt that they got was out of the Dead Sea. And so you've got this, uh, these minerals that go all around this uh, sea where the salt is, and it commingles with the salt. And so really, when you're getting salt out of there, you're not getting pure salt. So it was very common in the day of Christ that salt lost its flavor. And so you see this thing that, okay, now I'm starting to understand it a little bit. It's pretty common for salt to lose its flavor. Now, what was salt used for back then? 
was really used for three different things. One, to preserve life. You see the idea of putting it in the manure pile to, to fertilize, to help grow the crops that, that they wanted to grow. And then also it was used to flavor food a little bit, not as much because it was pretty expensive back then, but it used to flavor food to keep uh, flavor to the life of the food. And then also it was put in the soil to keep certain vegetation down to make pathways to among the houses or to the next village or stuff like that. And so now, if we really know what salt was used for back then, and now we can understand kind of where he's going here, because what he's talking about is he's comparing us to salt. So let's take salt and let's take a look at our lives. Okay, so how do we preserve life? Well, we personally cannot, but we have a message that we've been given by the Holy Spirit and Christ that we need to share. And that's what Romans 6.23, for all have sinned, Nope, that's the other one. Romans 6.23, for the wage of sin is death, but the free gift from God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We have a way to help preserve someone's spiritual life, to continue on this, this life in the afterlife. And so then we look at the flavor of food, and we've got a hope for today, because if you can ensure uh, and, and secure someone's salvation. They have a hope to one day stand before our Creator, and we've got a chance to worship face to face, and we've got a hope for today when it is not looking good. So we have this idea that we can give flavor to life today. And then we also we show the pathway, right? Jesus told us that the pathway is narrow. And so we've got this pathway that the Holy Spirit lays upon us to share with other people. So the problem is, is when we have this message, what do we do with it? Because it says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. So the idea that comes here is that we can be worthless to God. If there's one thing in life I do not want to do is be worthless to God. And so it comes to question, okay, how can I be worthy? How can I use my life to be worthy of God? So let's look at Matthew 28 here. Again, we have Jesus that came to his disciples, said, follow me. You've got this three years of discipleship, and then he dies. And you can just feel the the sorrow and the hope that shattered because they were following a guy for three years. Within this process, they believe that he's the son of God, that he's the Messiah meant to come and save his people, and now he's dead. And you can just, just sense the silence and the sorrow of not knowing where to go. My, my future was secure at one point. Now I don't know what to do. And so for three days, you see the disciples, they're just scattered. And then Jesus rises from the dead, tells Mary and Martha, go and get my disciples. And he spends, can you imagine just the energy that they have now? Like their hope is beyond restored. They get this new energy, this new focus of my Lord that I've followed for three years just conquered the grave just came back to life. There's nobody else in this world that's ever done this. Great. And they show up, they spend 40 days with him, and then he says, I'm leaving. What? Can you imagine the disciples here going, what are you talking, you just 
conquered death, Jesus, and you want to leave. And he goes, don't worry, I've got someone coming. I'm going to give you the comforter, and I'll be with you always. So we get to what he tells them, and this is how we have a message and how we're worthy. So let's read Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And what you have an idea here is, okay, so we are called... Follow me. We have a discipleship process. And then he says, now it's your turn. It's your turn to go teach what I taught, pray how I prayed, love how I loved, interact with God how I interacted with God, and even perform miracles the way that I perform miracles. Go and make disciples. And the interesting thing here, he doesn't go to Peter, James, and John, the top three disciples, and say, hey, Peter, James, and John, it's your job to go and make disciples. No, he goes to everyone who has decided to follow him and said, go and make disciples. Now, the interesting thing is, as a church, we've pretty much failed in that because as a church growing up, I put all the responsibility on the pastor or the minister to do the discipling. But we are actually called, as all people who is following Christ, who has become in a relationship with Christ, and in this discipleship process, we are told, this is what your worth is. This is where we find purpose. And that is, we are left on this earth to tell God's story to other people. And so we need to take a look at this and say, okay, that's our worth. That's how we find worth in Christ. So let's back up. We're going to go to verse 15, and we're going to see exactly this process and how who can come what can come or who can come what we do and kind of how we how we walk this process so uh, Luke 14, 15, it says, When one of those who were reclined at the table with him heard these things, and he said to them, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now the idea here is that he's reclining with a bunch of people at the table, Jesus is, and there's this guy that is just so excited that he's eating bread with him, and he's like, Praise God that I'll be eating bread with you in the kingdom of God. Now Jesus, he knows people's hearts, and he knows people's motives, and he knows people's uh, desires, and so he starts kind of telling the story that kind of makes people uncomfortable. He kind of rocks the boat, and he kind of shifts people's view on humanity at this point. And so this guy's sitting at this table, and he starts to tell this story. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. And so you see this picture of this master that, that has a huge mansion that wants to invite many people to this banquet. And he has sent the invitation out, and now he is sending his servant to say, okay, compelling to tell them to come. And so you've got the picture of the master, which is God in this story, and you've got a picture of the servant, which we learned is what? The Holy Spirit. We learned that from the unnamed servant in the uh, last series, that this is kind of seen that every time you see a, a servant being sent out, it's the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is going out and it's telling these people, come to this banquet. And then 
It gets to our humanity. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. And you and I both know as humans, we are great at making excuses. Like we make excuses for everything. Where's your homework? My dog ate it. Right? Why were you late to work? Oh, my car wouldn't start. Right? We make excuses for everything. And so we're going to take a look at this and kind of narrow down these excuses here because this is Jesus' story. So what excuses do we make? The very first one was talking about land. He said, I bought some land and I must go examine it. Who in the world buys land or a house and then goes and examines it? Right? Have you ever thought of that? Like people bought land back then for their status. The more land they have, the more wealthy they are, you don't go and buy a house and then go to see if you can actually inhabit it, right? You don't go and buy, a, you, you want to go, you want to make sure everything's kind of running, you want to make sure that uh, you have all the rooms that it says it is, you want to make sure the land is where it is. Well, you don't buy 100 acres of forest knowing you're going to farm it, right? I mean, you, you just don't do this. And so this, there's this excuse that my land... He's using this excuse as saying, my land is more important than a relationship with you. And so this is what we look at. If we look at our, our stuff, our materialistic stuff, my house, my car, my money, my wealth, my land, are you making this excuse, this is more important than having a relationship with God? All my stuff, it's about my kingdom instead of yours. So that's the first excuse. The second excuse is, is kind of work here. You see the idea of oxen. They used oxen back then to kind of help them be able to uh, plant crops faster, plow the field faster, and just do a number of things with the field. And so you could provide more for your family, and you could sell more because you could produce f- larger crops than you could by yourself. And so what this guy is saying, hey, I bought five oxen, now i got to go examine it. Again, let's kind of think of it today who in the world takes a job without doing their homework first like you don't go to a job in wisconsin thinking it's there without actually doing some homework right you don't research the company you don't go for an interview you don't do all of this stuff before you accept the job and so this guy's saying uh it's just not that important to me and so let's take it and look at it and say okay Is my work moving up the corporate ladder, is my way to provide for my family more important than a relationship with God? And then he gets to my wife. He says, I've married a wife and I cannot come. Well, back then, a wife didn't really have a lot of say in things. And so you've got the idea that if the husband wanted to go, they went. And so to use this excuse that the wife, I've got a wife and I cannot come, is basically saying my family is more important than a relationship with you, God. And so you see all of these excuses that we make. This is before we actually become in a relationship with God. And we do that. People do that today. They're like, oh, God, if I can move up the corporate ladder as soon as I have more time on my hand because I'm in the position I need, then I'll have a relationship with you. If I can provide and get to this status 
of wealth that I think I need to retire, then I'll have a relationship with you. Well, God, I'm the only one that believes in my family, and I know that my family won't come to church, so I'm just going to kind of sit and be idle, and then once my family believes, I'll, I'll start having a relationship with you. And so you see all of these excuses, and they're not just at the beginning. We use these excuses throughout our discipleship process because that's what we're good at. And so you see him continue on here, and he says, So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So you have this idea that, he, that these people that were invited gave excuses, did not come, and he sends his servant out and to go and get the poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame. And these people back then, these were seen as sinful people. Because if you're poor, you must be cursed by God. He hasn't blessed you. If you are crippled, it's because you've sinned in before during your life or your parents sinned and you were born crippled. If you're blind, you see the same way. If you're lame, you're seen the same way. These are sinful people. And we don't really want anything to do with you. That's, that's kind of how they viewed people back then. And so now you see this tension, right? This guy that's sitting at the table that feels like he's just, he's there, he understands it. You see this tension of, do you realize who's going to be in the kingdom of God? These people that you want nothing to do with here, they're going to be invited. And they're not going to make excuses. They're going to come and they're going to be a part. And praise God, because you and I both know that we're broken and we're sinful. We are the blind and the lame. And so praise God that he comes out even to our brokenness, even to our sin, and says, look, I don't care if you're blind, crippled, lame, or poor. I want you here. You don't have to become rich. You don't have to work that, that uh, being crippled back to where you can walk again. You don't have to have sight. I want you in my family now so that I can change you and make you what I want you to be. And that's how you see this happen here in this process and this just yearning and the longing of the father wanting to have anybody and everybody in his family. And then he continues on and says, The servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited who made excuses, shall taste my banquet. And you see this just love being poured out by this master and this longing of filling his, what, banquet. And, and you know, we keep starting services here because this idea that God wants us to go out and get and have standing room only. Like we started this fourth service because the second service was ridiculous and it's standing room only at some time. And we're like, praise God, let's start another one so that more people can come in. And there's this longing and compelling that we have the Holy Spirit in us and we're, dry, we're driven to go out and invite people into this love that we've experienced. Not only should we be just super excited that that happens here, it should be happening all across Van Zandt County. There should be a spirit inside us that drives us as a church to go out and have standing room only in all of our churches across Van Zandt County. And we should be excited when we see that everywhere across this, this city. So you get this idea that there's this uh, 
again, this longing for people to be in this banquet. And it says the highways and hedges. Now you're really talking about some unclean people. You're talking about the prostitutes that aren't allowed into the city that have to stay on the highways. And you're talking about the uh, people with skin disease or the leprosy that has been shunned from the city. That if you come in contact with them, you are unclean at that point. And you get the tension of this, this Pharisee here that's just like, I can't have this person sitting next to me because then I will be unclean. And so you get this picture that Christ is saying, I don't care where you are, what you've done, I want you here so that I can perform a miracle within you and change you and make you new. And you see this process, and, and then you see that um, the Spirit has to go out and compel people. Like the word compel is pretty amazing here because you and I have both been there, right? Like we've been there and we hear this story of salvation, accept this free gift of God, and we're like, it's too good to be true. Like nobody gives you a free gift of God of eternal life just by simply believing. They must want something out of this. And the gift of salvation is completely free. And then we're like, it's too good to be true. So we have to be pushed on. We have to be pulled. We have to be compelled by the Holy Spirit. A lot of us are like, I can't come to God because of what I've done. It can't be true. Because think about the poor, the blind. and I mean, these people weren't invited to banquets, right? The blind, you get there and they can't even see where to sit. The cripple's got his leg up on the table knocking glasses over, right? The poor, who knows what they're going to take. And you got all of these, this idea that these people were not invited and they're compelled even where they are in their brokenness and sin and he wants them there. And so you see this idea of anybody is welcome to follow me. That's the genuine time where Christ, you're feeling compelled by the Holy Spirit and you feel this, follow me, become like me. And that's where as a church, ministers have failed. Because what do we do? We, I've been in churches where we want you to come up, pray a prayer, say the same thing I did, praise God you're in the family, and we're done with you. And you grow up in this church not being discipled and not even realizing the mindset you should have when you come up. Because... The free gift of God is eternal life. This is good news. This is awesome news. We're done with it at that point because that's the easy part. The hard part's the discipling part. It's the hard part is taking us from broken sinners to a perfect righteousness person through the eyes of God. And so you have this idea here that I was listening to a sermon, and he kind of put it this way uh, this week. He said, the wedding day is pretty easy. Everybody loves the wedding day. It's the 50 years of marriage that everybody, is, is, it's kind of difficult, right? Making babies, pretty easy. Raising them, not so much, right? So you got this idea that this was the easy part. And as ministers, we have failed the church in just saying, here is the easy part. Now here comes the difficult part. Realizing where you are is not where God wants you to be. And then you have this process that a lot of us think that if we get into community for three weeks, we should be at this point. But spiritual depthness, actually getting to where God wants you, it's kind of like a crawl space. It's just this pace of slowness of, of God working in you to change you day by day by day to get him where you want. And so you've got this idea that people give up within a month because they're not changed. And God says, no, 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 stick with me. Don't quit. Stay with me through this whole process, and you're going to be amazed at the end. 
And that's where we end. But Jesus, he's no salesman. Like he doesn't just sell you the good parts of of what he wants you to do. He kind of lays it all out. He reads the fine print. And he says, this is what it's going to take. And he tells you up front what it is. And so we're going to continue on. We're going to take a look at this because after 24, it kind of gets a little difficult. It says, now great crowds accompany him. And so he's getting these great crowds coming around here in this story. And he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's some harsh language. We just saw this great picture of love and acceptance and forgiveness, and then Jesus immediately comes to a harsh language of using the word hate here. And when I hear the word hate, it's not something that I feel good about. It's not something that just brings joy to my heart, right? And so if we take this and we look at it and we're like, I cannot follow someone that wants me to hate my father, my mother, my wife, my children, What he's saying here is the idea is that you must love them less than you love me. He's not saying you hate them because if you take the whole Bible in context, he tells us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. So there's got to be a love foundation here among our our family, but we must put in perspective how it goes. The day that my wife loves me more than she does my heavenly father is the day that I failed her as a husband. The day that my kids love me more than they do God is the day that I failed them as a father. The day I love my wife more than I do God is the day that I have failed God. And so you get this picture of how we are to put importance. And God says, I'm number one, right? Even Jesus says that in the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. The funny thing is, it's never about us. The beginning of the Bible doesn't say, in the beginning there was Brian, right? It says, in the beginning, God. This book is about God. We unfortunately don't look very good in this book. And we look at it, and we see his eyes, and he says, I don't care how you look. I know exactly what you can be. So you see this process of discipleship here and the mindset. And he even says we have to hate our own life. And what that, you kind of look at it and you start looking, okay, what do we consider life? We consider our material things the way of life, right? We consider our life as we live in this house, we live with this stuff. And so you got to start looking. And even my life as my sin, that's why it says the old has gone and the new has come. We have to hate our old way of living so that we can move forward in this discipleship process with Christ. Then he goes on, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And the idea of cross, we pretty much diminished today because we, what do we do? We hang it around our necks. If you have a cross on, it's okay. But we hang it around our necks. We put it in our ears, right? We put it on the back of our trucks. We put it on our business cards. And we have kind of diminished the meaning of the cross nowadays. And so you take a look at that, and what did the cross symbolize then? And it was death. Like the cross symbolized not only death, but the most gruesome death that you could go to. And you see this picture when Christ, beaten and uh, 
made fun of and lashed with the cat of nine tails with his flesh ripped from his skins and not eaten for days. He's got to carry this death sentence on his back for a half a mile, knowing exactly where he's going to. And we see that and we think, oh, half a mile, okay, you know, whatever. But really, if we back up to his ministry, he knew exactly where he was going to go the moment he started the miracle in Cana three years before his death. And so really, he's carrying this cross. He knows exactly where he's going. And you see it in Gethsemane when he is broken and he hates the idea and he does not want to go to death. And he prays, God, please take this cup from me. And he says, but not my, not what I want, what you want. So even if it leads to death, and this is the mindset that we need to have, the problem is, is I can, tell, I can ask everyone in here, are you willing to die for Christ? And most of us would raise our hand and say yes. But this has gripped me this week. This has challenged me this week because I might say yes, but I'm afraid to go talk to my father-in-law about Christ because I know exactly how he's going to respond. And so how can I say I'm willing to die for Christ when I won't even share my faith with my father-in-law? When the rubber meets the road, would I really be willing to die if I can't even do something like that? You see coworkers that you're with, and it's hard to share your faith with coworkers because you know exactly where they are. So are we really willing to die for Christ when we won't even step out and just talk about it? That's, it's, it's gripped me. This verse has just been like hammered on me this week with that. And then he continues on. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is able to finish, all who see it is begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And so you see this idea that this guy, right, he just started to build before he realized he ran out of money and he can't finish it. And we've all done that. What? We live paycheck to paycheck, right? We, we get in there. We write out the bills. We've got a paycheck for two weeks. We write out the bills. We see at the end of this, we got like $50 to last a week and a half. And we're like, okay, I think I can do it. It's going to be a miracle of God, but I think I can do it. And then we forget about a bill that we paid previous and it comes through. And then you're like, you go in the overdraft, you have to pay some fees, you might have to transfer some savings, go to your family, borrow some money, right? And you're trying to save face here because nobody wants to look like this. We want our, we want our, uh, just the way that we present ourselves to look good. And Jesus says, get ready because this is not always going to be this way. You got to realize the cost that you're doing here. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will sit, not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And we've all been there too. If you're married, right? Husbands, you go to work and you get this text on your way to work. Hey, you forgot to do this, this, and this. Yep, sure did. What do you do? You go and you buy some terms of peace, right? You get some roses or favorite candy, and you come with this delegation, right? You might send them in with the kids first because you know you're about to face a battle that you can't win. So you're trying to save face. Again, you see this, let's put our best foot forward. And God is saying your reputation doesn't really matter. You need to count the cost. You need to realize that your status, that your fame is going to be nothing compared to what mine is. So we need to be able to put his 
reputation before our own. And then he says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And the idea of renounce is to uh, separate, to set apart, to forget about and to turn to him. And so we start looking at our lives and, and we start thinking, we look at our lives like this. What can I get out of my family? What can I get out of my job? What can I get out of my money, my time, my hobbies, right? What can I get out of this for me? And Christ is saying, no, no, no. You need to look at it as in what can I do for God in my family, for God at my work, for God with my things, for God with my hobbies, And so you see this because then he comes again. He ends with 34 and 35, and it ends with salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the idea is that through this process, we make excuses on why we can't be in a relationship with God. I'm not good enough. I can never be that. This comes before God. And God is saying, don't quit. There's this idea that's pushing forward because you do not want to lose your saltiness because then your worth for God is not there. And one thing that I don't want to be is unworthy to be used by God. So there's a few things here that we'll see. We're going to look at this discipleship process real quick. And we're going to lay out everybody that's in here. And you're like, man, this is my first time to church ever. I don't even think I'm on this process anywhere, right? So let's take a look at this process. And we're going to see here this discipleship process that the creator of the universe has laid out. Some of you today have no relationship with God. You're before this relationship starts, this process starts. So there's two types of people in this room today. There's those that have decided to follow Christ and those that have not. There's no walk in the fence. You can't say, oh yeah, I'm going to follow Christ with this leg and I'm not with this leg. It's either, or, it's either you have or have not. It's e- you've either decided to be a son and daughter of the king or you are still being your own self in the world. There's no and. And so some of you today you have been presented with this idea that you are welcome into the family of God. And while it's a great picture of love and forgiveness, there's cost to, be, to look at here. This is important stuff. This is before I make that leap, I need to know what I'm being asked to do. And so you are here, and so before you can even disciple, you have to become one. You have to actually decide. You have that Holy Spirit tugging at you, pulling you, pushing you, and you're like, I don't know what's going on. I've never felt this before. And you're here today, and you get the idea of salvation that you don't have to do anything to be a follower of Christ, to come into that relationship, and you don't know what to do. Come see us afterwards. We'll be at the back. You've got this moment. Some of you have made that decision to follow Christ, right? And you're still young in your faith. You haven't really been discipled yet. And so you've made that decision. You kind of don't know where to go from here. Or you've grown up in church and you hear about, hey, come make this decision. And then you were forgotten about. And so you're still young in your faith because before you can disciple, again, 
You have to be discipled. And God disciples usually one of two ways, if not both. Through the Holy Spirit, through reading his word. So as you're reading his word, he's challenging you to become different, to step out of your comfort zone, to go and make disciples. And then he works the Holy Spirit through others. And so why do we push community? Why do we push getting into a journey group or a men's group or a women's group or finding someone that you can meet with weekly that you can talk it out and hash these things out and move along in this process because God works through his people. He works through the Holy Spirit through others. So there's a moment in your discipleship process that you need to be discipled. And then some of you have walked with Christ for a long time. You've had a relationship with Christ for a long time, but you have not moved into that phase of making disciples. And you have no clue how to do it. And guess what? That's okay. Because God is the one that makes them. He uses you to go out and do it. You must be simply faithful to take that first step. He doesn't give us a lot of information at first, but he says, take that first step and I will be faithful to you. And so you, for those that have made that decision to be a disciple, my question is, who are you discipling? Because God has put you in your family. You had no choice. So what has God, how has God placed you in your family? I have a family member that doesn't know Christ. I have more than one. More than likely, you have one that doesn't know Christ. Start looking at your family through the eyes of a disciple, being a follower of Christ, and decide how God has already connected you with people that don't know him. God has placed you in a place where you work for a reason. It's no longer to provide just for your family, but it's to be an ambassador, a disciple for Christ with people that don't know him yet. Start looking at these connections that God has already started and find people that don't know Christ and start making disciples. And then my other question for those that are disciples is, what are you teaching? Because it's important to God. Are you teaching If you're a disciple of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, you're teaching something. Are you teaching him, are you teaching people that your job is more important, that your things are more important, that your family is more important than God? Because the day that I'm teaching my family that they're more important than God is the day that I've messed up. Because there should be this awe, this love for God that says you are above all And then comes everything else. So what are you teaching? Because if you're not teaching that Jesus is the most important thing, then you're teaching something different. So it's a challenging series because this is where we are in our faith. We're somewhere along that line. Where are you and where are you moving to? I'm going to leave you with an illustration because I love illustrations and I think this pretty much points it out pretty easily. You may be the one in your family that loves puppies. You may not be, and chances are you're married to the one that does, right? My wife is the one that loves puppies, not me. So what happens when people see puppies? They look down, they're like, oh, that is so adorable, right? You see them and you're like, oh, man, they're little tail wagging. That's so cute. And then they're running around trying to get it. And they're like, oh, that's so, I need this puppy, and they pick it up, and for some reason they think their breath smells like roses, and I'm like, are you smelling the same thing I am? 
right? And you're just like, oh, no, no, no. And then you start kind of getting into it, and you start picturing what this puppy's going to be like later on. And you're like, man, he's going to be a faithful dog. He's going to be loyal. He's going to go hunting with me, right? He's just going to walk by my side. He's going to protect me. Then we get home. And in six days, he's pretty much chewed up anything that's on the floor. He's pretty much thrown up exactly what he chewed up. And now you have to clean that up, right? Not only that, he's pooped and peed everywhere. And you've probably found 75% of it. And you're like, okay, be careful. And then he's scratched at the door, right? He's, he's just gone crazy. And what do you do? You put him outside and he runs away. And he comes back when there's a storm and he wants protection or he's hungry, right? And you're like, where's the relationship here? And you start working with them and, and pretty much six weeks into it, you're like, okay, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to leave the door open. I'm going to come home and be like, what happened? Where's the puppy? And you're just leaving the door open, hoping that he'll, he'll walk out. Or you're hoping that he secretly learns how to dig and get out and run away, right? You're like, it's not worth it. Welcome to God's world. He seizes his puppies. He seizes his spiritual infants. He knows exactly where he wants us to be. And in this process, his discipleship, he trains us, he molds us, he teaches us. What do we do? We chew up everything, we spit up everything, we get out, we run away, we come to him when there's a storm and when we're hungry. The only difference is God never wants to leave the door open. In fact, he wants to shut it and lock it. He never wants you to dig out. In fact, he reinforces the boundaries that he set up because he loves you and he sees this life that you can get to. And it is worth him going through all this discipleship process to bring you where he wants you to be. Not only that, he knows all of this and yet he still wants to take us home. And we get to that point and he says, well done. Now go and do likewise. Go and make disciples. Where are you in this process? Be worthy to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today. God, I thank you for your process. I thank you for your discipleship. I thank you for your discipline of making us more and more like you. God, it's challenging because we want to be selfish. We want to be in control. We want comfort. And you say, all is welcome to come, but realize that it's going to be difficult. Father, I ask that you help us to realize exactly what you want us to change to be more and more like you. God, give us purpose, give us wisdom, give us worth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.